thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And of course we take your interesting, quirky, funny science questions for Dr. Christopher Smith on 021-446-0567 and 011-883-0702. You can also SMS us 31702 and 31567. Chris, good morning. Good morning. So this week we are hearing that uh, cancer cells don't travel alone. They have sidekicks. <clears throat> yeah, fascinating story this. It's in the journal Science. It's just come out in the last 24 hours. And this is researchers at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Harvard, Matthew Myerson's group. They have been studying people who have colon cancer, so cancer of the large intestine. They have got a very large sample of these tumours. They have also got a very large sample of tumours which have spread around the body. So in some cases they have the original tumour, the primary, and they have the metastasis where it's spread to in the body. They have samples of both. When they looked at these, they were surprised to see there are not just cancer cells in there. These cancer cells are taking bacterial passengers with them. And it's not that the bacteria go around in the bloodstream and settle in the cancer. Genetically, these cells, these bacterial cells in the original tumour and in the place it's spread to in the body are 99.9% or more genetically identical, showing that they started in the primary tumour and they went with it to where it was going. Now you might say, why does that matter? Well, it does matter because what they then go on to show in their science paper is that tumours that have these passenger bacteria are much more likely to behave aggressively and the disease is much more likely to have progressed and as a result they think that these bacteria may in some way be promoting the growth and development of the cancer. And when they do experiments in mice and give antibiotics to kill these bacteria, they're called fusobacteria, then the mm-hmm. rate of progression of the cancer drops dramatically. So this is suggesting, A, and confirming that the bacteria have a role in the progression of the cancer, but B, it may offer us a new way to treat cancer, which is not so much with chemotherapy designed to kill dividing cancer cells as antibiotics to kill certain types of bacteria. Aha. And so uh, the so when we start treating this, um, how do we go about doing that? So we know how to treat cancer. Um, is there a special antibiotic or way to treat these, I guess, these bacterial sidekicks that we now know exist? Well, uh, although in this experiment they did this with an antibiotic called metronidazole, which kills these bacteria very effectively, just taking antibiotics brute force like this is probably not a good idea because it will upset your bacterial apple cart because we have billions of bacterial cells that live quite harmoniously with us and we depend on them to be healthy. If you go through with uh, this sort of cleansing phenomenon, then you're going to knock out the good guys as well as the bad guys and, and you're going to be overall a loser. So what they say in their paper is, well, perhaps what we need to do is to find some kind of middle ground. We need a new drug or agent that will selectively kill off these nasty bacteria, which we know are associated with promoting the tumour spread, and leave untouched our healthy good bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, mice were used, or there were control mice given a different antibiotic to try and deal with the so-called fusobacteria. Um, what kind of change, if any, did they see to their cancers? 
Well, when you treat the uh, cells, the bacterial cells, with the antibiotic to which they are sensitive, that's the metronidazole, then the progression of the tumour is much slower and the rate of growth of the tumour is significantly retarded. If you use any old antibiotic that the bacteria are not sensitive to, and you do that as a control just to make sure this is not some effect of, of manipulating bacteria elsewhere in the body, when you do that, it doesn't make any difference at all to the way the cancer grows, thus proving that these um, bacterial cells appear to have an, a very important role to play in, in the progression and growth of these cancers. Aha. It is the Naked Scientist, and he's here to answer your questions on 021 and 011 You can also send us your quirky, interesting questions on 31567 and 31702. Pavel in Cape Town, thank you for holding. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Chris. Here is Pavel. I have a question about um, aspirin. Aspirin does not cure, it blocks pain. Now, my question is if I have a headache, I take aspirin, it blocks my pain. When the aspirin wears off, the pain is gone. If I go to sleep, don't take aspirin. The sleep blocks away the pain, but I wake up with a headache. <laughs> Could you tell me, uh, is there any connection, or how can I explain it? Uh, hello. There's a number of reasons how and why this works. And first of all, you have to ask, well, why have you got a headache in the first place? It may be that you were just too tired and stressed, because we know that tiredness, we know that stress and uh, and dehydration all play a role in giving you a headache. And it may be that some of those factors are reversed when you have a period of rest. But how does the aspirin know where your headache was and therefore where to target in your body? The way this works is that drugs like aspirin, which are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, these are chemicals that block the inflammatory process. And in the case of aspirin, this is a chemical called um, um, acetylsalicylic acid. And it blocks a pathway in cells called the cyclooxygenase enzyme. And cyclooxygenase makes inflammatory chemicals called prostaglandins. So aspirin goes all around your body, and wherever it bumps into one of these cyclooxygenase enzymes, it blocks it and inhibits it. And once it's inhibited it, it can't make any of these inflammatory chemicals. So anywhere in the body that inflammation was happening, inflammation can now no longer happen, and that inflammation is what we regard and feel and experience as pain. Um, It's not that the aspirin knows where your headache is, it just targets the system that enables your head to ache and therefore inhibits it wherever that process is trying to happen. And as I say, when you then go to sleep and reverse some of the other factors that may have led to you having a headache, like tiredness, fatigue, stress, etc., then many of those factors will be reversed overnight too. So when you wake up in the morning, you feel much more refreshed. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for your question. That's Pavel in Cape Town. Dennis and Cyril Dean, good morning. Hi, thanks very much. Um, a question about microwaving food. The general opinion I say that is that microwaving is no worse than other forms of cooking but I've heard another view that microwaving excites water molecules inside whatever you're cooking, causing heat to be forced from the inside out. This results in cell-by-cell nuking, causing a near-total molecular de- decomposition of vitamins and phytonutrients. And, that, and these are the things that prevent cancer and other diseases. So, so what's your question? Hello? So my question is, what is your view? Is it microwaving okay or is it not okay because it's other views nonsense or is there some merit to it okay well you're, you're sort of right about how microwaving food makes it hot the frequency in other words the size and the regularity of the light waves because microwaves are a form of light electromagnetic radiation the size of those waves it's 1.45 gigahertz so one and a half, one almost one, um, one and a half billion of those waves every single second get made in the microwave oven that frequency is chosen because it makes water molecules vibrate. 
So what you're doing is making water molecules in anything you put inside the microwave oven vibrate about 1.5 billion times a second. Uh, sorry, 2.45 is 2.5 billion times a second. And when they vibrate, it's a bit like you rubbing your hands together 2.5 billion times a second. As you know, if you rub your hands together, you feel heat there. So the water molecules just flipping around do that and get hotter. Now, that's no different, really, than if I put a pan on a hot plate and I put energy into the pan and I make the water molecules in the pan vibrate by making them hot. Because when you make anything hotter, then particles begin to have more kinetic energy. They bash and bump around and vibrate faster. And that's what we call getting hotter. So it doesn't really make any difference how you put that energy in, whether it's a hot plate or a microwave. The difference here, though, and that you have to be aware of and be careful of, and the reason you have a, a turntable in your microwave is because the magnetron in the microwave, this is the device on one side of the microwave that makes the microwaves, this produces what's called a standing wave pattern of microwaves inside the oven cavity. A standing wave is where the wave appears to stand still in space because the waves are being produced and they're mapping onto the same point in space all the time. And so you've got areas where there's a lot of energy, the wave is moving up and down a lot. You've got other areas, these are called nodes, where the wave is not moving at all. Wherever you've got these antinodes where it's moving a lot, at that point you've got a lot of energy being put into the food. In areas where you've got nodes where the wave is not moving very much, then you haven't got much energy going into the food. So you'll get hot spots and cold spots. If you're talking about the nutritional value of food, if you make food too hot, you will break down vitamins and, and other nutrients in the food. So if the food becomes too hot in certain places with the microwave heating, then you could do damage in terms of just chemically degrade the, the chemical benefit of the food. That's why you have a turntable, because this moves the food through that wave pattern, making sure that all of the food gets an even distribution of energy, and therefore you shouldn't get these focal hotspots. Therefore it shouldn't be any less safe than cooking on a hot plate. And, and in fact, some people argue it's more safe and you get more beneficial nutrients out of food which has been cooked in the microwave or steamed compared with um, food, food that's been uh, obliterated in the oven or on a hot plate at very high temperature. Thanks very much. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 21 minutes after 10 o'clock. It is, of course, still The Naked Scientist answering your interesting, fun, and quirky questions on 011-883-0702-021-446-0567. And we have uh, Tommy in Pretoria who has a question about eye drops. Hello, Tommy. Good morning. My wife uses eye drops to control um, eye pressure. And the problem that we face is every time we fly... And after we've landed, then she opens the little bottle, very tiny bottle, or the drops um, flies out. It's both due to the air pressure. I want to find, is there a way that we can control it, that we can keep some of our drops not flying out when after we flew? Oh dear. Yeah, um, I think you're a victim of the fact that there's big pressure differences between when you're on the ground and when you go in the aeroplane. 
What happens when you go up in an aeroplane is that although the cabin is pressurised, it's not pressurised to ground level pressure. It's pressurised to about 8,000 feet or so, uh, 5,000 feet, give or take. And th- there are a number of reasons for this, but it's to do with the structural integrity of the aircraft and uh, how much um, strength you have to give the plane fabric and therefore how much mass of the plane there is. So a compromise is made and you have a slightly lower pressure that you fly with. Now, what that means is that anything that's a sealed vessel down at ground level, which you then go up in the aeroplane, open it up, you then let pressure out of it and uh, and and the pressure inside becomes lower, you then put the cap back on and it shrinks down. Um, when you then go down on the ground, it will pressure will go up again so that the, the object or whatever the thing is will be compressed. So that's why your drink bottle, for example, looks a lot smaller once you land in your aeroplane. If you don't equalise the pressure when you're up there, then you, you, you shouldn't have any problem. If the bottle hasn't been opened, it will just be because it's been shaken about while you're flying, but the pressure shouldn't make any difference. It's only if you've opened it while you're up there um, where, where you get this pressure difference which can, can cause it to change shape. So I would suggest that one way to, to get around this is either use one that's sealed when you left the ground and don't open it when you're up there and open it when you're on the ground and make sure it's settled. Or if you do have to open these things while you're up there, open them very, very slowly to let the pressure equilibrate and let the pressure from ground level out at altitude very slowly and then it should stop all the stuff flying out for you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that question, Tommy. We also have Mike and Strand with a question as well. Mike, good morning. Hi, good morning, Chris. Um, um, we we are involved with uh, effluent water treatment, and there's an accumulation of uh, hormones, and you can't get that out by reverse osmosis. Is there a biological way to break down hormones, or uh, what is your take on that? Hello, Mike. The concept for those who might not realise what we're discussing here that Mike is referring to is this whole idea that when humans put waste down the drain, there are lots and lots of chemicals that we use in our daily lives. There are chemicals from our own bodies. These include not just hormones like the oral contraceptive pill, but also things like antidepressant molecules, antibiotic molecules. All of this material leaves the body in many cases unchanged because the drugs are just filtered out in urine, for example, or they leave via what, what else goes down the lavatory, and they find their way to the sewage treatment works. Now, in the same way that they're not broken down in the body, there may well be things at the sewage treatment works that can't break them down either. So many of these chemicals can't be broken down easily and they tip over into the water supply discharge. So a sewage treatment works will discharge the water which has been cleaned up into, say, a river or in some cases it's put back into a reservoir because it's judged to be clean enough to then be um, subject to retreatment. Now, the problem is if you have this burden of chemicals in there which are not being altered by the sewage treatment works, they could accumulate in the environment that means animals can come into contact with them and may affect be affected by them or they end up back in the human supply and we're all being exposed to them and this is one concern that people have raised so people are worried about this and and there are many of these molecules that do have a very long environmental half-life they hang around in the environment for a long time people are monitoring this they're looking at this and and it's a big concern especially because within the next 75 years people are talking about um maybe three quarters of the human population living in cities. And this means this problem is going to become more and more acute as time goes on because we will be putting a lot more pressure on the water supply and reuse of water, like you're saying. So at the moment, I don't have a simple answer for you. Many of these molecules are quite hard to get rid of, which is why it's a headache for people like yourself. Would, would enzymes have any effect on that? 
Well, certainly some enzymes can break down these molecules, um, but the problem is uh, actually making it into an efficient process because many of the other chemicals that are coming through may well poison your enzymes or damage them, or uh, that the rate at which the enzymes are capable of grabbing these chemicals and acting on them um, may make it almost impossible to remove sufficient of them. So certainly people are looking at this, but I'm not aware of anyone with a magic bullet. What, what, what about some receptor that would accumulate the hormones that you could flocculate them out? That is the other part of the question. Yes, well, again, people are looking at this, but the problem is the burden and how much there is there, because obviously it's, it's easy to remove 100% of something if you have an infinite amount of time in order to allow whatever chemical process or um, chelation or flocculation process that you're suggesting to work on it. The problem is that obviously you have got water arriving at X number of million litres a day and you've got to process it. So how you can get enough water past enough of these scrubbing systems to pull out a reasonable amount of these things to, to actually make a difference, that's the challenge and no one I don't think is there yet. Yeah, I believe MIT, the whole uh, eight floors of engineers trying to work that out. I thought maybe you had a quick fix. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> if I did, much. I'd be rich. <laughs> Thank you. So would I. Thanks, Chris. Thank, Thank you very much, Mike. That's Mike and Strand and Justin in Bedford View. Good morning. Hi, hi. Sorry, I thought uh, you confused me. I thought it may be another Justin. I'm phoning from Bryanson at the moment. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> my question um, also relates to microwaves. Um, is it safe to stand in front of or in close proximity to a microwave when it's in operation? I've heard that uh, it's not and it sort of leaks radiation, um, but I think it's a fallacy. I just want to confirm whether my thoughts are right or wrong. Hello, Justin. The answer is it's probably perfectly safe. The reason being that the frequency, the wavelength of the microwaves which are used in your oven are almost the same as the microwaves used by your mobile phone and by the Wi-Fi in your house and in public spaces. They're all using a very similar band of frequencies. And the dose you'll get from your microwave, where the microwaves are being produced within a confined space, a metal box with a grill on the window, which is chosen to have holes in the grill of the right size so the microwaves don't fit through but visible light can. That's how you can see what's going on inside the oven, but you're not being microwaved. Um, that means that, that most of that energy is confined. Um, so A, it's confined within the oven, and B, it's a very similar frequency to, to microwaves, which we regard traditionally as relatively safe. Um, they can heat you up, but um, not many people are cooking themselves with their mobile phone, and the dose you'll get from a mobile phone held next to your head is much higher than the dose yeah. you're going to get from your oven. So at the moment, we don't think that there's any evidence um, to, to give us cause for alarm. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your question, Justin. A quick one. Someone asking, why is it humans can tell when someone is looking at them? So you can, the idea is you, you, the, you, you can feel someone's eyes on you. They're asking, is that a sensory, uh, sensory function? Why can you tell when you're being looked at? Well, it, it might actually be significant through coincidence. Um, how many times have you thought someone's looking at you, you've turned around and no one was looking at you and you dismissed the notion and thought, oh, I was just being silly. The one time that you thought, I'm sure someone's looking at me, you look around, they are looking at you and then you think, whoa, that must be that must be because I had sixth sense or eyes in the back of my head or something. Um, people are very socially aware. 
we're a social species and it's not just humans animals can tell when you're looking at them we have a part of our brain that decodes where an individual is looking in order for probably so that we can give directions to each other and, and work cooperatively animals pack animals like dogs do exactly the same thing and they can work out when you're looking at them and many animals regard direct visual um, engagement as a threat or a challenge so it's not just humans but i think that when you turn around and, th- and think I reckon someone's looking at me and you find that they are or they aren't. I think that's probably us integrating the social media. We feel uneasy. We're in an environment where we, where it's right to feel a bit uneasy and to be cautious. And then the one time you look around and someone really is looking at you, you attach significance to that. But it was actually a coincidence. One has to be very cautious of that sort of recall bias. And that's The Naked Scientist for the week. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thanks, Goog. See you soon, everybody. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.